Before we start this week's episode, a bit of housekeeping. This week is a short episode to round out our series on the Mr. Asia murders. If you haven't heard the rest of the series, they're in your podcast feed. And if this episode isn't enough life and crimes, we've just released a bonus episode on the prison stabbing of drug kingpin Tony Mockbell. So go and listen to that. And if you want more, I've written about Mockbell and prison attacks at heraldsun.com.au. So if you're a Herald Sun subscriber, you can go and read them. And if you're not, you can go to heraldsun.com.au forward slash Andrew Rule and click on any article to sign up. It would not be the power of forensic science that would bring the killers undone, but the weight of guilt. Eventually, almost everybody they arrested rolled over and grasped on the rest. The morning after Andy Marr and his mates disposed of the body of Martin Johnson in a flooded quarry in Lancashire, Terry Clark gets a telephone call. It's from Marr, who's up in Lancashire. It was at least the sixth murder that Clark had organised or done himself. All he said was, good one. His only comment. Just four days later, four days later, on a Sunday morning, two novice scuba divers went diving in the Eccleston Delph, a flooded quarry known mostly for the huge number of stolen and wrecked cars that were dumped there. This pair of would-be divers swam around underwater until they saw what one thought was a shop dummy on a rock shelf about 25 feet down. Then he saw that it wasn't a shop dummy because he saw what he called the squiggly tubes and mess coming from the vicinity of the stomach, which of course was the intestines coming out of the stomach because Andy Marr and his mates had opened up the stomach with the axe so the body would sink. Obviously didn't do a good enough job, obviously didn't throw it out far enough. The divers also noticed the severed wrists, the hands had been cut off, which would delay identification. Well, it was calculated to delay identification. It was one of the biggest cases that the Lancashire Police had done in years, and 60 detectives were assigned to do it. Their big difficulty was trying to identify a body that had no hands and whose face and teeth had been smashed beyond all recognition. But in the end, it would not be the power of forensic science that would bring the killers undone, but the weight of guilt. And that's what brought down Terry Clark's evil empire. And this is how it happened. For almost two weeks after the murder, Andy Marr's de facto wife, Barbara Pilkington, mother of the little girl, Marty, named after the dead Martin Johnson, For two weeks, she tried to distract Martin's girlfriend, a girl called Julie Hugh. She told Julie that Martin had been called away on business. She said he's, you know, he's had to go to Scotland and he's had to stay away and he's busy and, you know, he's doing it all for you to make money and happily ever after and so on. And on it went. And all the time that she's doing this, Barbara's not feeling very good at all. She feels very bad. Anyway, she thinks that Julie needs distracting and cheering up. And so she says, why don't we go over to Spain? 
to the Costa Brava, where, of course, Andy Ma's father was running a bar, as your good poms do. They get a bar on the Costa Brava or the Costa del Crime. Julie Hugh, the, um, doesn't realise she's a widow, but anyway, she is. She's not a big reader, but on the 21st of October, not even two weeks after her man has vanished, she sees an English-language newspaper about a body found in a quarry near her hometown in Lancashire. And she shows this to Barbara, and Barbara breaks down and tells her the truth. And in the midst of many tears, she explains or tries to explain how her husband, Andy Ma, had been forced into killing his friend. And that's how it all came unstuck, that very human reaction to a very inhumane crime. The two distraught women attempted to commit suicide by taking sleeping tablets, but it didn't work. And after a long sleep and some big talks, they flew back to London. Barbara called Andy Ma, who was by then in Singapore, and blurted out that she didn't love him anymore. He suggested that Barbara and Julie go home to Lancashire. It wasn't, for him, the best advice, because as soon as they got home, Julie Hugh told her devout Seventh-day Adventist mother the truth about what had happened to her boyfriend Martin and her shocked and pious mother called the police. So within two weeks, the balloon had gone up. Oh, here we are, Terry Clark's in London, living in Mayfair. His temporary girlfriend, the beautiful lawyer Karen Soich, is riding a hired hack horse around Hyde Park. Clark's living like Caligula and he's fiddling like Nero and his empire is about to burn. Andy Ma is arrested as soon as he steps off a plane from Singapore at Heathrow. Early next morning, Scotland Yard police dodge around the fortified entrance to Clark's Mayfair apartment. Instead, they force their way through a back door. They find Clark and Karen Switch in bed together. She yelled at the police, Get out of the room and let me get dressed. What's going on? I'm a lawyer. She was also a liar. She told Clark not to tell them anything except his name and address, and she demanded to see a warrant. The police were to accuse her of trying to kick a diary under the bed. Then Soich claimed that she only did the washing and cooking. She didn't know anything at all. This did not actually tally with the available evidence because the police found a lot of photographs that Clark had taken, and among them were pictures of Karen rolling naked in hundreds of banknotes on the double bed. Clark told the detectives that the pictures were art. Asked about it later, he said, well, women like money, don't they? After that, it all unravelled more and more. Police made arrest after arrest, each leading to the next. Eventually, almost everybody they arrested rolled over and grasped on the rest. They all told various versions of the truth, that they'd been pawns in Clark's game. Strangely enough, it was Clark who should have known better, who talked the most. He boasted about his exploits in Australia and New Zealand, and he proved that if you talk enough, you'll say the wrong thing. Inevitably, he made a mistake, and in this case, the mistake he made was to tell the police that he had supplied the pistol to Andy Marr, but he claimed that it was for Marr's protection. But once the police knew that he'd supplied the pistol and that he'd agreed to that, they could connect him with the murder. 
for a man who'd spent millions and millions of dollars on lawyers over the years. It was a foolish mistake. He was charged with Martin Johnson's murder and several other serious charges, as were Andy Marr and his mate Smith and the two others who'd helped him with the abduction and killing of Martin Johnson. Karen Soich and six other people were charged with conspiracy. By 5th of November, this is not even one month since the murder, they'd all been remanded without bail. They buried Martin Johnson, or what was left of him, a couple of weeks later up in Lancashire. Only his mother, his girlfriend Julie Hugh and Andy Marr's broken-hearted de facto wife, Barbara Pilkington, mourned the good-looking rogue who had once thrown the biggest parties in Singapore. The only other person at the gravesite was a detective from the Lancashire Police. We need to mention here a woman called Alison Dine. Alison Dine had been a key member of the organisation for some time. She knew literally or figuratively where the bodies were buried. It was she who knew all about Clark's smuggling techniques. She who knew the people that he'd had killed and who they were and why. And it was she who'd sensed that he was becoming increasingly dangerous and that if she didn't get out of the way, she might be next. So Alison Dine had bolted to America using a false identity. And indeed, she might have got away with that and never been found again, except for one thing. She got an American boyfriend who ran into somebody that he knew, who remembered Alison Dine, and that way the police spoke to the friend and then spoke to the boyfriend and then were able to backtrack Alison Dine to the boyfriend's address in Orlando, Florida, and that way bring her back to Australia and ultimately to England under her correct name. Alison would become a star witness in four proceedings. That included the Clark committal, the Wilson's inquest in Melbourne, and the conspiracy case against three dodgy narcotics bureau officers who were accused of selling out information to Clark. In return, Alison Dine went free. She was able to return to the anonymity that she'd had just three years before. The trial of Terry Clark ended up taking 115 sitting days, all in the north of England. 14 of those days was the judge summing up the evidence of 175 witnesses. It took the jury another week to deliver a verdict. They found Clark guilty on three counts of murder and two drug conspiracies. All the co-accused were found guilty except for a minor player called Jack Barclay and, of course, Karen Soich who walked away and went back to New Zealand, where, after a few years of not being allowed to practice as a lawyer, she got her ticket back and worked and lived happily ever after. To this day, if you're in New Zealand and you need a good entertainment lawyer who understands contract law as it applies to rock concerts and those sort of things, Karen Soich is the go-to person. She knows a lot about it. Terry Clark was under no illusions At the end of the trial, he looked over at Karen Soich's mother, respectable businesswoman from New Zealand, and he said to her, you got both things you wanted. Your daughter was acquitted, and I'm locked up for 20 years. And that was that. But there's a postscript. Terry Clark went to Parkhurst Prison, and that's where he died, in August 1983. He hardly lasted more than a couple of years. And it's one of life's little mysteries. Officially, he died of a heart attack. An unusual fate for a relatively fit 
39-year-old prisoner. But in his Royal Commission into Drug Trafficking tabled in Australia that year, Mr Justice Donald Stewart suggested that Clark might have been smothered by several other prisoners. It seems likely that Clark, the one-time informer, might have fallen foul of the uh, prisoner code of behaviour. He might have been currying favour with the authorities by grassing up various folks and they might have taken a dislike to him. Of course, there could be an even more sinister explanation. A long-range conspiracy to silence him to prevent any chance of his revealing which police, public servants and lawyers had been on his payroll back in Australia. Read my column in the Sunday Herald Sun and online at heraldsun.com.au Supercoach is Australia's biggest fantasy footy game and it's back for 2019. Don't miss your chance to take on your mates for ultimate bragging rights and a shot at the $50,000 grand prize. If you need more tips and inside info, tune in to the Supercoaches Box, the official Supercoach podcast, every week on iTunes and wherever you listen to podcasts. Access a world of true crime podcasts on CrimeX Plus, where award-winning journalists take a deep dive into unsolved cases. Every week, we're waking up to a dead woman, a dead mother, sister, auntie, grandmother. It's not good enough. From the team that brought you The Teacher's Pet, Shadow of Doubt and Dying Rose, unlock early, ad-free and bonus content from brand new series and flagship shows such as I Catch Killers with Gary Jubilin. One was shot in the mouth and I thought he was dead. Another one had been shot with a shotgun and I got the overspray. Search for CrimeX Plus on Apple Podcasts to start digging deep into the world of true crime.